We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 121 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, August 12th, 2021, the day of the preseason opener for the Washington football team. Washington at the New England Patriots, Thursday night at 7.30. We can officially say that it is a game day for the WFT. We have not been able to say that in many months. January 9th was the 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card game. Here we are more than seven months later. A lot has changed for the Washington football team. Bunch of new players, guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel and William Jackson III and Charles Leno and Bobby McCain and Jamin Davis and Samuel Cosme and many more. A bunch of players are gone. Guys like Ryan Kerrigan and Morgan Moses, and Alex Smith. The front office has been reshaped with the hirings of Martin Mayhew, Marty Herney, and Chris Polian, and the departure of Kyle Smith. The ownership has been reshaped as Dan Snyder bought out his disgruntled minority partners, Dwight Shar, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. Tanya Snyder now is co-CEO and is overseeing all day-to-day team operations. At least, that's what we're told. Danny Boy escaped the Beth Wilkinson investigation virtually unscathed. A lot has transpired over these last seven months or so. A lot has gone down for our football team. It's great to have you with us here on this podcast. You know, one of my goals when I started this podcast in late February was to make this podcast a must-listen if you're a Washington football team fan. And on this Thursday night, we begin the game portion of the new Washington football team year, albeit the preseason. Although, note the date, this preseason opener is happening on August 12th. Washington's regular season opener will take place on September 12th. So we're one month away from the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one. Coming up next segment, three big things that I want to see from the Washington football team in its preseason opener at the Pats on Thursday night. I have for you on the show a special guest. I teased this toward the end of Wednesday's show. I am delivering on that tease on this show. Fred Smoot, the former Washington corner, the mouth of the South, 
the leader of the Red Wolves movement. Uh, I've done a lot of radio with Fred Smoot over the years. He will be with me on this installment of the pod. We will go in-depth on the Washington football team. Wait till you hear what Smoot has to say about Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. And wait till you hear what Fred has to say about Benjamin St. Juice. Fred Smoot is a big fan of Benjamin St. Juice. Fred likes St. Juice. Yeah, you could say that Fred, he likey the juice. He likey the juice, eh? (laughs) Yeah. The juice is good, eh? Yes, Fred, he likey the juice. He likey the juice. Uh, Also on the show, because we're not just about the Washington football team, I will talk nationals. Uh, They were supposed to play two games at the New York Mets on Wednesday, only played one, what was the resumption of the rain-suspended game from Tuesday night, and what was a loss, the Nats blowing two three-run leads in an 8-7 loss, although Juan Soto was back starting, and he looked good, at least at the plate. Also, get into the Orioles later in the show. Another loss for them, although the O's did avoid Major League history in how they lost. Uh, And a certain Oriole, a potential building block Oriole, is back to being on fire. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, if you would like for the power of the pod to work for you, to grow your business or practice, especially as Washington football team season is getting going here. Hit us up. Your ads can play on this pod. Email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Ty, uh, writes Ty, you're killing it, Al. Well, thank you, Ty. Continues, Ty, we don't do rhyming keys for preseason, do we? Much love, bro hug. Well, thank you, Ty. And a big bro hug right back at you. No, rhyming keys is a regular season thing. Rhyming keys, for those of you who don't know, is a segment in which I give keys to the upcoming Washington football team game in rhyming fashion. Uh, The rhymes are not meant to be good. They're only meant to make a few points. As I like to say, the worse the rhyme, the better the time. But thank you for asking, Ty. Rhyming keys will be back in full effect beginning with week one. Email from Jeffrey in North Beach, writes Jeffrey, we're taking the pod to the top and without a doubt, Big Vlad is listening in Moscow. Uh, ah, yes, a reference to me saying on Tuesday's show that I have listeners of the podcast in Russia, and perhaps Vladimir Putin uh, is among those listeners. Continues, Jeffrey. I'm sure you've been following or have an opinion on the mascot situation in Colorado. I am really interested in your opinion on this. This about confirms for me why we would be best advised to stay the WFT. Clunky, sure. Unoriginal, maybe. But is it? This may be an opportunity to be innovative or do something different as it pertains to mascots in America. WFT, like any name, will catch on with winning football. I, like most of us, want to be on the right side of history, but sometimes that line seems to blur or move. At some point, the pendulum of what's deemed appropriate or not will swing in the opposite direction. Say Red Wolves, if they become extinct, does that present an issue for some in a few years? Or we can just go Wolfpack, do two sweet hand gestures, uh, Stringer Tanks NWO style, and Blast Voodoo Child Hollywood Hogan slash NWO style on third downs. Uh, thank you for that email, Jeffrey. Voodoo Child is never a bad idea. One of the greatest songs of all time. That song meant money when Hollywood came out to it back in the day. Oh, by the way, Hollywood Hogan, Hulk Hogan, he turned 68 on Wednesday.
So yeah, by Colorado mascot situation, you are of course referring to the Colorado Rockies mascot situation. So the Rockies mascot is called Dinger. A fan at Coors Field on Sunday in trying to get the mascot's attention at a game yelled Dinger. There was a black batter at the time, Lewis Brinson of the Miami Marlins. People went nuts thinking that the fan yelled the N-word. The onslaught of outrage and lecturing and pontificating was massive. The Rockies on Sunday night put out a statement saying that they were disgusted by what happened. But then on Monday, (laughs) as it became clear and clear that the fan had yelled dinger and not the N-word, the Rockies on Monday afternoon put out a statement saying that, quote, after a thorough investigation that included calls, emails, and video clips from concerned fans, media, and broadcast partners, the Colorado Rockies have concluded that the fan was indeed yelling for Rockies mascot Dinger in hopes of getting his attention for a photo, and there was never any racial slur that occurred, end quote. <laughs> you, you cannot make this stuff up. This was like an episode of Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm. So if you're the Washington football team, I guess the lesson in the Dinger saga is uh, don't with whatever your new name and logo end up being have a mascot with a name that if you say it loudly and quickly can maybe possibly be construed as a racial slur. I don't know what the lesson is. I mean, Dinger is another word for a home run. Dinger is a perfectly acceptable name for a mascot for a baseball team. The initial reaction to this ordeal was embarrassing. This rush to be upset, this rush to virtue signal before the facts come out is so bad, okay? It is so bad. It is so divisive. And I promise you that there are people in the media upset that the fan was yelling dinger, disappointed that the fan was yelling dinger. They so wanted the fan to have been yelling the N-word. It's just ridiculous. I mean, I'm all for pointing out racism when it exists and combating injustice when it exists. Those things do exist. We know that. You know, you'd have to be a monster not to be in favor of eradicating those things. But this dinger story should be remembered by everyone the next time that something like this comes up. You know, this is not unlike the Bubba Wallace saga. So you certainly have to be careful with these things, and you obviously need to investigate these things, but you can't just assume the worst with these things. You can't be so quick to condemn with these things. Investigate and then condemn if, in fact, the facts bear out that something terrible has taken place. But, you know, this thing of let me be the first to show everyone how wonderful of a person I am by condemning what happened. Uh, Sure, knock yourself out, but you better be sure that you know what happened. You know, it's not always so clear what happened in these situations. I mean, it's just crazy. Dinger. He was yelling dinger. Like, that's something that would happen to Larry David in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Dinger. I was yelling dinger. But as far as the WFT goes, Jeffrey, I I don't want that as a permanent name. I just don't. I mean, that's me. And I know I'm not alone in that regard. I don't want Washington football team as the permanent name. That's not a name. Pick a name. And by the way, I do think that the team ultimately will pick a name. You know, it's funny. When I hear dinger, I think of this engineer who we used to have at 980. Uh, His nickname was Dinger. Everyone called him The Dinger. Uh, That's what he went by. Uh, Radio engineers are pretty much always quirky people. They're almost never just normal people. They're just not. And there were two things about The Dinger that I'll always remember. One, he constantly wore shorts. It could be 30 degrees outside, but he'd still be wearing shorts. Two, The Dinger always had the same answers 
for any computer problem that you ever came to him with, okay? And the answers were user error <laughs> and restart the computer. That's what he would say. Well, could be user error, i.e., it's probably your fault. And then, so he wouldn't have to do anything. He'd just tell you to restart the computer. I feel like that's every engineer's and IT person's answer to every computer problem. Yeah, just restart the computer. Yeah, it's probably your fault. Just restart the computer. You see, you got to understand, the top goal for every radio engineer when you go talk to the engineer is for you to no longer be talking to the engineer because inevitably, the reason that you are talking to the engineer is that there's a problem. Radio engineers have this Pavlovian response of a look of annoyance when you go to talk to them because the reason that people go to talk to them is that there's a problem. So the Dinger's approach (laughs) was user error and just restart the computer. The Dinger. I'm glad that I never shouted his name. All right, on to the Washington football team as Thursday is a game day. All right, so Thursday night is the night. Preseason opener for the Washington football team at the New England Patriots at 7.30. Ron Rivera has not given any specifics in terms of playing time for starters, hasn't said exactly who will not play due to injuries. Some of that is obvious. Kyle Allen won't play. He still has not been practicing fully in training camp off aggravating his surgically repaired left ankle two Saturdays ago. Curtis Samuel won't play. He's back on the active, physically unable to perform list with that groin injury. William Jackson the third may not play. He has been dealing with a leg issue, a charley horse, as Ron described it. Matt Ioannidis may not play. Uh, he has been ramped up quite slowly off his time on the reserve COVID-19 list. The number one goal for Washington at the Pats, obviously, is to avoid injury. A few things in football are worse than losing a key player to serious injury in a meaningless preseason game. You know, it was just three years ago, 2018, that Washington, in a preseason opening loss at the Patriots, saw Darius Geis suffer a season-ending torn left ACL. Uh, Let us hope that nothing like that happens in this preseason opener at the Pats on Thursday night, regardless of how you feel about Geist now. But beyond the obvious goal of avoiding injury, here are three things that I'm hoping to see in Washington's latest preseason opener at New England. Number one, I want to see Washington throw the football a lot. Uh, I'm not really that interested in seeing Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick get carries in this game. We know that there is virtually no game plan for Washington for this game, so it's not like a running game has been schemed up. And we basically know what Gibson and McKissick are as ball carriers. Now, they certainly can be better. I'm not saying that they don't need work, but they were on the team last season. We have a good sense of what they are as ball carriers, given that this first preseason game is mainly about just having guys go out there and play, and given that Washington has a new starting quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick. And given that Washington has multiple new receivers in Adam Humphreys and Deami Brown, and given that Washington has other receivers with minimal experience, guys like Antonio Gandy-Golden and Kelvin Harmon, and given that Washington's passing game last season was woeful, and given that nothing in the NFL matters more right now than being able to effectively throw the football, yeah, I want to see a lot of throwing by Washington in this game. I'm not expecting Fitzpatrick to play for long in this game, maybe a quarter, but I would love to see him have at least 15 pass attempts. I know that that's aggressive for a quarter, but whatever, let's shoot for that. I would love to see Taylor Heineke have 15 to 20 pass attempts in this game. I'm guessing that the second half will be the Steven Montez show. That's fine. Uh, You can run the ball a decent amount in the second half with Jared Patterson, but especially with Fitzpatrick and Heineke in the game, let them throw a bunch. 
as uh, Steve Spurrier used to say, pitching and catching. Let's have a whole lot of pitching and catching with especially Fitzpatrick and Heineke in this game. And having a lot of pitching and catching in the game also will allow for deep evaluation of the receivers. I mean, there's a lot to sort out with Washington at receiver. We need all of the info that we can get when it comes to who should make the season opening roster at receiver beyond the obvious five. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Cam Sims, and Deami Brown. And let's be honest, with the fact that Samuel has yet to practice during training camp, it's possible that Samuel does not begin the regular season on the active roster. Maybe he does begin the regular season on, say, the regular season version of the physically unable to perform list. Maybe even the regular season form of the injured reserve list. Who knows? So let's get good looks at and plenty of targets for Harmon, Gandy Golden, Steven Sims, Isaiah Wright, even DeAndre Carter. Let's put the passing game to work in this game at the Patriots on Thursday night. A second thing that I want to see from Washington in its preseason opener at the Pats on Thursday night Clarity at corner. I want things to clear up at the cornerback position. So the top four corners for Washington are set, right? William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Moreland, and Benjamin St. Juice. And not necessarily in that order. It may be that St. Juice ends up playing more than Moreland. We've seen a lot of nickel looks in training camp of Jackson and St. Juice on the outside and Fuller in the slot. Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio like St. Juice. And for good reason. Rod and Jack, likey, the juice. You like the juice, eh? <laughs> yeah. You know. The juice is good, eh? Yes, Rod and Jack, they likey, the juice. Uh, so the top four corners for Washington are set, but the back end of the cornerback position is not set. Uh, Danny Johnson was listed as Washington's top kickoff returner on the unofficial depth chart that came out on Monday. I do think that Johnson will make the season opening roster, but he did not play on a single defensive snap for Washington last season. So who are the corners beyond the core four of Jackson, Fuller, Moreland, and St. Juice? Is Johnson now a factor? Uh, Is Daryl Roberts making the season opening roster? Is Greg Stroman still a factor? Is Troy Apke a factor? Remember, he's making the transition from safety to corner. Does Washington not keep as many corners as we think, given the position flex, yes, of Bobby McCain, who can play both free safety and nickel corner, and as I have pointed out, is listed on WashingtonFootball.com as being a corner? Uh, What about some of these lesser-known corners, like Cole Luke and Torrey McTire? You know, Cole Luke is interesting. Washington, last September 7th, signed Luke its practice squad. And then Washington last November 21st promoted Luke from the practice squad to the active roster and actually signed him to a two-year contract. Uh, Luke in the 2020 regular season played in five games for Washington. The 2021 season would be Luke's age 26 season. He entered the NFL in May 2017 with the, wait for it, Carolina Panthers as an undrafted free agent out of Notre Dame. Uh, So Luke goes back to Ron's time as Panthers head coach, Luke in the 2019 regular season played in eight games for the Panthers. And then there's Tory McTire, who has gotten a good bit of attention recently. He has made a lot of plays in training camp. Washington, this past January 12th, signed McTire to a reserve future contract. The 2021 season would be McTire's age 26 season. He entered the NFL in May 2017 with the Miami Dolphins as an undrafted free agent out of UNLV, played in 12 games for the Dolphins over the 2017 and 2018 regular seasons, then played in five games for the Cincinnati Bengals in the 2019 regular season, but McTire did not play in the NFL 
in the 2020 season. Who out of all of these guys makes cases for themselves to make up the back end of Washington's crop of corners on the season opening roster? I'd like to see one or more step forward with this game at the Patriots on Thursday night. And then a third thing that I want to see from Washington in its preseason opener at the Pats on Thursday night, special teams excellence. I want special teams to be special in this game on Thursday night. And I want to see this in three ways, especially. The first way is Dustin Hopkins making whatever field goal attempts that he has. Ron Rivera has not brought in competition for Hopkins, who Washington re-signed in March. I want Hopkins to validate that trust. Also, uh, I on Thursday night want to see DeAndre Carter return a punt for a touchdown. Yes, I know that's a big ask. I want to see that, okay? I want to see a house call from DeAndre Carter. I do believe that Carter will make the season opening roster as Washington's primary punt returner. He has extensive experience as a punt returner and has been a very good punt returner. I want to see him show us on Thursday night that a uh, new era for Washington on punt returns is upon us here. Washington has been horrible on punt returns over the last four seasons. Here are Washington's rankings out of 32 NFL teams in yards per punt return in each of the last four regular seasons. 2020, 27th. 2019, 32nd, dead last. 2018, 25th. 2017, 27th. So Washington has been 25th or worse in the NFL in yards per punt return in each of the last four regular seasons. That is terrible. And I didn't even mention Washington's fumbling problem on punt returns last season. Stephen Sims and Isaiah Wright guilty of way too many fumbles on punt returns in the 2020 regular season. The last good punt returning season for Washington was 2016. Jameson Crowder was actually really good on punt returns that year. He finished the 2016 regular season fourth in the NFL in yards per punt return at 12.15. Got to get back to that. Washington signed Carter as an unrestricted free agent on April 1st. He over 63 career regular season punt returns has averaged 9.35 yards. That's good. You can work with that. You can function with that. And then one more thing that I want to see from Washington special teams on Thursday night, Cameron Cheeseman do well on his snaps. I want to see the cheese man deliver on his snaps. Something that we have not talked about is that Cameron Cheeseman did not look good as Washington's new long snapper in the Friday night football practice at FedEx Field this past Friday night. Now, that's one practice, okay? I don't want to go nuts over that, but this guy needs to be good. This coming season, the Washington football team on day three of the 2021 NFL draft traded a 2022 fifth round pick to the Philadelphia Eagles for one of the Eagles 2021 sixth round picks and one of the Eagles 2021 seventh round picks. Washington then used that sixth round pick on a long snapper, Michigan long snapper, Cameron Cheeseman. You likely know I was not a fan of this. You should never spend a draft pick on a long snapper. You should never draft a long snapper, just like you should almost never draft a kicker or punter. You can find these guys on the cheap, and these guys mostly vary in terms of performance year to year. Do you know how Washington got Tressway off waivers in August 2014? Tressway was a waiver pickup. That's how you do special team specialists. Spending a draft choice on a long snapper was ridiculous, in my opinion. And 
by the way, it's not even like Cheeseman was viewed as some elite long snapper. He wasn't even on the Pro Football Focus draft board for the 2021 NFL draft. Cheeseman in the 2019 season, his last college season for PFF, had a snap accuracy as a long snapper of just 84.7%. Okay, look, Ron Rivera isn't a dummy. So clearly there are things about Cameron Cheeseman that Ron Rivera really likes. But there is an onus on Cheeseman to deliver on that belief, especially considering, A, that Washington not only spent a draft pick on Cameron Cheeseman, but traded to acquire that draft pick. You traded to get a pick and then use that pick on a long snapper. That's a twofer. That's quite a twofer when it comes to taking a long snapper in the NFL draft. And B, remember, Ron Rivera said bye-bye to a guy who had been Washington's long snapper and a guy who had done a really good job as Washington's long snapper for years in Nick Sundberg. And, you know, I'm not wedded to Nick Sundberg being Washington's long snapper. Like at some point that was going to come to an end. But Nick Sundberg was Washington's long snapper for 11 seasons, 2010 through 2020. Nobody ever complained about Nick Sundberg's long snapping. And yet Sundberg on March 17th announced that he had been told that he was no longer in Washington's plans. So the guy who replaces him better be at least as good as him. We'll see, right? We'll see. Um, so I think there is, I don't want to say pressure on Cameron Cheeseman, okay? Like, I don't want to make this a huge thing of, you know, the spotlight is on the long snapper in preseason game number one. But uh, I think this guy needs to be someone who's here for a while. Otherwise, it's going to look pretty foolish. Washington trading for a draft choice and then using that draft choice on a long snapper. And before you say, hey, Galdi, calm down. It was just a six-round pick. I understand that. But so many good players get taken with six and seventh round picks every year. And our team is an example of that, right? Alfred Morris was a six round pick in 2012. Chase Roulier was a six round pick in 2017. Cameron Curl was a seventh round pick in 2020. So you may have cost yourself a shot at somewhat along those lines just to take a long snapper. So again, I just, I don't agree with that philosophically, but we can all live with it if Cheeseman ends up being a staple at long snapper for Washington for the next decade or so. So we'll see. The Cameron Cheeseman era as Washington's long snapper begins with this preseason opener Thursday night at the Pats. But there are things to be mindful of with this game. There are things to be excited to watch in this game. I know I'm excited to see uh, what I just outlined for you and a whole lot more. And we'll be going through all of it on Friday's installment of the podcast, episode 122. Well, I know someone else who's very excited to watch the Washington football team in its preseason opener at the Pats on Thursday night is Dr. Matthew Mintz. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's a big supporter of this podcast. Dr. Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician who is rated as a top doctor by both Washingtonian and Bethesda magazines. If you need a regular doctor, Dr. Mintz is accepting patients in his concierge practice. Now, Dr. Mintz also offers something very special and really groundbreaking in the treatment of depression called Spravato. So Spravato is a new FDA-approved medication shown to be safe and effective in patients with what is called treatment-resistant depression. You see, while most patients respond to traditional prescription medications for depression, up to one-third of patients do not improve even after two or more medications. This is called treatment-resistant depression, which can be debilitating for patients and lead to thoughts of suicide, even suicide attempts. If you or someone you know is dealing with treatment-resistant depression, understand it doesn't have to be this way. Spravato is a nose spray administered in a doctor's office. Unlike most pills that can take weeks to work, 
Spravato can start working right after the first treatment. And because Spravato is approved by the FDA, Spravato is covered by most insurance companies. Dr. Mintz will work with your insurance company to make sure that Spravato is approved and understand that for most patients, the cost of each dose is only $10. Yeah, $10, totally worth it to get your life back. And for patients with Medicare, Medicaid, or Kaiser, or with an insurance that doesn't cover Spravato, Dr. Mintz is also able to administer nasal ketamine, a nose spray similar to Spravato, and that treatment should cost less than $10 per treatment, even without insurance. Spravato can only be administered in authorized healthcare settings, and Dr. Matthew Mintz is one of the few physicians in the DMV who is authorized to administer Spravato in his private Bethesda office. Dr. Mintz and his staff will monitor you closely throughout your treatment to ensure your comfort and safety. You can find out more by going to drmintz.com, that's D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com, and clicking on the Spravato link. But if you, a friend or a loved one, have depression that is not getting better with traditional treatments or medications, there's no need to continue to suffer. Contact Dr. Mintz to find out if Spravato may be right for you. You can call Dr. Mintz's office at 855 646 8963. That's 855-646-8963. And make sure when you call to mention this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, because doing so will get you $50 off your initial consultation. That phone number again, 855-646-8963. There's no need to suffer from treatment-resistant depression. Contact Dr. Matthew Mintz and tell him that Al Galdi sent you. All right, preseason opener for the Washington football team is Thursday night at the New England Patriots at 7.30. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, the cover corner, the mouth of the South, the leader of the Red Wolves movement, the pride of Mississippi State, former Washington corner, Fred Smoot. Smoot, doggy dog, how are you? I'm great, God. Always good to talk to you, brother. So, uh, generally speaking here, as we begin the preseason, how are you feeling about our Washington football team? Actually, I'm feeling better than I ever have about this team. I don't think I ever came into a year playing or cheering, feeling like I feel about this team. Like, this team is set up for the next decade to be a contender. And I think it's just everything starts now. Wow, I love it. Unabashed optimism from Fred Smoot regarding the Washington football team. In terms of playing time on Thursday night at the Patriots, what do you think we'll see from Ron Rivera when it comes to starters and how long they're out there for, especially considering that Washington only has three preseason games now? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say because he's going to have some players he wants to see, some starters he wants to see. And that's the difference between the preseason for different players. Guys that were here last year, he don't need to see them. Guys that get here like Ryan Fitzpatrick, he might want to see a little bit of Ryan Fitzpatrick. He might want to see a little bit of of William Jackson. He might want to see some of the newcomers get out there and show me what you got. And some of the old guys sit back. I know what you got. uh, Stay healthy and get ready for the season. So it's always different for different coaches. With with, with Coach Rivera, he's kind of hard to read. He's one of those guys, he's going to do stuff his way. You mentioned Ryan Fitzpatrick. Are you a believer in Ryan Fitzpatrick? Well, I'm also a guy that picked off Ryan Fitzpatrick, so you know how long ago I <laughs> But I'm a believer, man. His last three years, he's matured in a way, uh, and he's learned the quarterback job 
He's learned how to dictate the defense. He's learned how to put the ball where he wants it to be. He's learned a lot. So he's one of those guys that got better with age. So I'm one of those people. I do believe in Ryan Fitzpatrick, but I actually believe in Tyler Heineke a little bit more. Like, I think Tyler Heineke, when we talk about Tyler Heineke 10 years from now, I think he's going to have a, a very Kurt Warner-type story. I just think he's going to come out of nowhere to be something special, to take us somewhere special. So I'm more of a Tyler Heineke guy. Wow, that's a pretty big statement. I like Heineke too, and I feel like there should be more of an openness to him as a starting quarterback. I don't know that there is, though. Do you think that Ron is open to Taylor Heineke? I know Ron has talked up a quarterback competition. You know, not sure how much that actually exists. Where do you think Ron is at with Heineke? I think Ron is where I'm at. Like, I think Ron is waiting to give him an open shot at this position. I just think that Ryan Fitzmagic is getting most of the, 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 the first team reps. But I think Coach has really got his eye on Tyler Heineke because think about it. They are the same person. They are guys that can push the ball down the field, guys that can actually move around better than you think they can move around. So Ryan Fitz, I mean, uh, Tyler Heineke is actually a mock-up of this magic. Like, he's just a younger version of him. So I think Coach is looking like, you know what? If he continues to get better, now one thing we know about this magic also is he hasn't played 16 games, and plus we got 17 this year, ever. So he's going to miss a game or two. Now, when he missed that game or two, does Tyler Heineke relinquish that job back? I don't know. I see if, in my mind, if Tyler Heineke ever get that job, he's never giving it back. So it sounds like you think, okay, Fitzpatrick begins the season as a starter, but if slash when Heineke gets a shot, Heineke may never relinquish that QB1 role. I don't think he ever relinquishes. I think he pulls the Kirk Warner. I think he takes this team to where they want to go. Now, let's think about this. Out of all the playoff last year, Tyler Heineke played the GOAT, the best quarterback of all time, went head-to-head with him. That was the hardest match Tampa Bay had in the playoff, was the Washington football team, led by Tyler Heineke. That says a lot. I don't disagree with you. I thought Heineke played so well in that game, especially, Fred, when you consider Washington didn't run the ball well in that game. Washington had a bunch of drops in that game. Heineke got hurt in the game. And he still ended up doing what he did. He was very impressive that night, no doubt. What about, though, the health with Heineke? That's been the thing, right? He has a hard time staying healthy. How much is the durability concern for you with him? Well, he did. He, he was teaching a school uh, bagging groceries at the time, right? So, <laughs> let's not do this. Like, the offseason, he's had time to build his body up. He's had time to do different things. Like, I'm never worried about a guy that we just got off the street that got hurt. Now... Now, let's see what he can do now after he's had a year of lifting weights. He's had a year of building his body up. He's had a year of doing this. Like I said, we're dealing with a different animal now that he knows he has a chance to dance compared to a guy that was about to teach classes. We're talking with former Washington corner Fred Smoot. So it's been a while since Washington truly had a deep receiving core. What do you make of this receiving core? Is it legit? Is it now a strength? It's legit. And it's more than legit. Like, this is how you always know if if you got a group that's legit. When I do have to cut people, am I cutting somebody that somebody's going to sign the next day? Yes, we are. If we cut Steven Sims, he will be signed the next day. If we cut AGG, he'll be signed the next day. If we cut Cam Sims, he'll be signed the next day. So no matter Kevin Harmon, sign the next day. No matter who we cut off of this group, 
that will be signed the next day. So it's a very talented group. It's a very deep group. And I remember talking. Like, this is what I like about this group. If I'm an offensive coordinator, I can literally bring in Curtis Samuel, uh, McLaurin. I can bring in uh, I'm running back. But you still don't know what formation I'm in. I can literally put the running back outside the numbers, make a linebacker go out there and check him. I can put Curtis Samuel, motion him back into the backfield, and that will force a, a, a cornerback to play linebacker. All right, and we'll run right at him. See, that's what they have with this with this wide receiver group and this running back group: a lot of flexibility and a lot of fluidity. And that's what you want. You want guys that play different positions. And I think Curtis Samuel is the ultimate joker out of the deck. Yeah, I think you're so right about that. The position flex, Ron talks about that all the time, but the ability to utilize different formations, use guys in different roles. Are you worried about Samuel with this groin injury? He hasn't practiced uh, at all during no, training no, camp. No, I'm not. I think it's kind of like they don't want him to practice. Yeah. I, I got a feeling they don't because he's that, he's that wild card. He's the guy that once he goes into motion, uh, that corner has to worry about him getting the ball. When he is in the game, he changes formations. And I don't think they want to show any of that in the preseason. So I don't think that's why I, when you listen to Coach talk about it, he's not concerned. He's not concerned at, at all. And I think he's not concerned because he don't want to show anything. All right, let's talk Washington secondary, a position group you know well. Uh, William Jackson the third. what does he bring to the Washington football team? I think he's going to be great. He's one of those guys. You know how if you play for the Denver Nuggets, nobody knows you, all right? Well, he went through that. Uh, he played for the Cincinnati <laughs> Bay. Nobody knew him. He, he went out there. He'd done his job. And now you go to this NFC East. I remember years ago when Numbly Osamwa came to the NFC East, and I said he will be undressed. Because the one thing about the NFC East, we play all our game on TV. All right? We play all our game on TV. We play Dallas on TV. We play Philadelphia on TV. We play New York on TV. And you're going to get exposed. Now, with William Jackson, I think he's going to benefit from, one, playing with this dominant defensive line. Two, he's long and he's sticky. Now, think about this. Not only is William Jackson long and sticky, you got Benjamin St. Juice, this 6'3", 200 pounds and sticky. Kendall Fuller can play inside. So, I'm thinking, why not put the long guys outside, put Kendall in in, in the inside, and I think now you got some shut down corners to match that defensive line. I think this defensive backfield is going to be special. I think Benjamin St. Juice will be up for defensive rookie of the year. I'm saying it right now. He's a third rounder, and he will be up for defensive player. I mean, defensive rookie of the year. Wow. Uh, you know, St. Juice, there's a lot to like with him. Like you said, he's tall, he's long, he's physical. Him playing on the outside, Fuller on the inside, though, would mean less playing time for Jimmy Moreland. Are you okay with that? Less of Moreland this coming season. I'm okay with that because I'm okay with competition. And the one thing about it is uh, Jimmy flashes. Jimmy always flashes, but he's just he's always a second too late. All right? The one thing we know about Kendall Fuller, he's going to be Johnny on the spot. Now, I got to get the best three on the field, but I got to have four or five corners. And, and if Jimmy is your fourth corner, that says a lot. We saw a lot of zone coverage from Washington last season. Are you anticipating seeing more man coverage this coming season? I'm, I'm, I know, I, I'm thinking more uh, the same amount of zone because no matter if he's playing zone or man, they're still blitzing in a, in a fashion. And what they want is, with this rush from this defensive line, they want the defensive backs to have their eye on the quarterback. Zone lets you do that. 
Once you play man, your eyes is on that man. I anticipate them playing just as much zone as they played last year because that allows them to make plays on the back end because of the front gonna get to the quarterback. So it's gonna be it's gonna be fifty fifty like it was last year. With safety, uh, the idea of Cameron Curl as the free safety with Landon Collins as a strong safety. Are you a fan of that? I'm a fan of it. Uh, Landon has came back. He's fifteen pounds lighter. Lot to prove. Is it? I always tell people. The only reason I remember sitting down having this conversation with Daryl Green, and I was like, how do you start 20 years in the NFL? And he was like, simple, son. Never let the man behind you play. <laughs> right? It's, it's as simple as that. And Landon got hurt. Let Cameron Curl play. So now they go where everything is. And I'm good with it because if you play free safety, you play strong safety. Because all the tight end has to do is get up and move to the left and now the free becomes strong. So you're going to rock and roll in their position anyway. So I'm fine with both of them playing free and strong. Your fellow Mississippi State Bulldog, Montez Sweat, on Tuesday said that he and Chase Young want to break the combined sack record. I loved hearing that from Montez. How great can they be, though? Like Now I think you really start to think about, okay, how high is the ceiling for this Chase Young-Montez Sweat duo? Uh, like, like Michael Jordan said, the ceiling is the roof, all right? The ceiling is roof with you. Uh, I, I, I think they can be special. You can't. With both of them in the game, it makes the offensive line play pure. And when I say pure, meaning one-on-one blocks. Who can you double-team? Like, if you double-team one, you're letting the rest of them go one-on-one. Somebody's going to make a sack. I think they have not only the chance to break the sack record, I think they're going to have a chance to break the sack record, then come back the next couple of years and break their own record. That's how special. I think they can be. My dog brother, he he going through the same thing I went through. I happened to get here in a defensive back room with Champ Bailey, Hall of Famer, Deion, Hall of Famer, uh, Darryl Green, Hall of Famer. So no matter how many plays I made, I was just always that other dude. And, and I see that with Montez. He just never gets as much respect as he garnishes. And that's going to keep him on his toes. So it's going to keep him coming. So I, I, I got a lot of respect for the guy, and I think, like I said, I think they have a chance to not only break the record, I think they'll come back two years later and break their own record. Yeah, we're still trying to figure out what MJ meant when he said that, the ceiling is the roof, but we get the idea, the ceiling is high. The ceiling, the ceiling is the roof! <laughs> no question. You know, I was thinking about it, so you were drafted by Washington by Marty Schottenheimer. Ron Rivera seems to be Marty Schottenheimer-like. Do you see parallels between the two? I do. I do. Disciplinarians, guys that hold people responsible, guys, I mean, and no kind of no nonsense in a way. Now, when I met Marty, I had the uh, disciplinary Marty, but he was also crying Marty at the time. He could cry on the drop of a dime. I don't think that's what Coach Rivera is at the time. But I think Coach Rivera and Coach Marty, they are very similar in the ways of what I ask for is what I want. And I'm going to hold you accountable to give me what I need. All right. If I have you employed on my football team, I don't care if you're the first dude or the third dude. I expect you to be great. That's why Antonio Pierce ended up being great. That's why McCann's ended up playing outside of himself. He holds everybody accountable. And I think Coach Rivera does the same exact thing. So you were a part of the best defenses that we had seen in the Dan Snyder era, those defenses under Greg Williams. We finally have a unit that we feel like, okay, can be that good, maybe even better. How do you compare what Washington has defensively now versus what you guys had in the days of Greg Williams? Well, it's so funny. It's, uh, it's, 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 the defenses were built backwards. 
Our defense is built from the defensive line, which that's where you should build from. Our defense was built from the defensive backfield. Think about this. We had me, Sean Springs, D'Angelo Hall, Carlos Rogers, Sean Taylor, and LaRon Landry. <laughs> so we had nothing but first-rounders in the defensive backfield, nothing but pro bowlers in the defensive backfield. But if you look at our defensive line with Phillip Daniels, uh, Cornelius Bennett, uh, Ghosted, we were not packed on the defensive line. We was back-heavy, not front-heavy. This defense, I think they are equal. I think the defensive line get out of love, but I think the defensive backfield is just as talented. We was kind of lopsided with my defense, and we still dominate because we have some special players. I think they're going to dominate at a more consistent pace because of the defensive line. If you control the, the line of scrimmage, you control the game. And I think that's where they're going to win. That's why they're going to be more dominant than we were. Do you remember the specifics of your interception of Ryan Fitzpatrick? Uh, I actually do. Uh, I was playing for Minnesota at the time. He was playing for the Rams at the time. Uh, they was going in the red zone. He threw a uh, he threw a pass into the red zone. I picked it off. I should have brought it out, but I didn't. Uh, why didn't you bring it out? I don't know. I think Coach had, I mean, I was playing for Tomlin at the time, and I got a pick the week before that in the end zone, and I brought it out, and he was like, you should have kept it in the end zone. And I think I had his voice still in my head. <laughs> well, you, you got the interception. Hopefully we don't see many of those from Ryan uh, this coming season. Especially from old dudes like me. You know how long ago that was? That was you know, a while really? ago. That was a while uh, ago. It, it was a decade ago, Gaudi. A decade. Yeah, but you could play, though, all right? I mean, give yourself credit. You could play. So that's all right. I don't think there's too much shame in Fitzpatrick having been picked off by you. Uh, great to catch up with you, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Hey, anytime, Gaudi. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, so as you perhaps are aware, the 2021 Major League Baseball season has been a mess of a season for the Nationals, and so to nobody's surprise, the Nats' ongoing series at the New York Mets is a mess of a series. Game one of the series was suspended due to rain. Game two of the series, which was supposed to be game two of two games on Wednesday, postponed due to rain. And so we now have a doubleheader scheduled for Thursday afternoon, beginning at 12.10. If the doubleheader is completed as scheduled, all three games in the series will end up being screwed up in some way. Game one suspended due to rain started on Tuesday night, ended on Wednesday. And then games two and three, seven inning games due to being part of the doubleheader on Thursday. Thursday is only August 12th. 
The Nationals' regular season isn't due to end until October 3rd, but I've got to think that the Nats themselves already are looking forward to the end of this season. I mean, you think about this, from the Nationals' COVID-19 outbreaks, and I say outbreaks as in plural of outbreak because the Nats have had multiple COVID-19 outbreaks, uh, from the COVID-19 outbreaks to the injuries to the wild variance in individual players' performances, to the massive sell-off, right, trading away eight players for 12 prospects, to a game being suspended due to gunfire outside Nationals Park, to, oh yeah, all of the losing for the Nats. Uh, This has been some season for the Nationals, and I'm guessing for a lot of people inside the organization, I'm guessing for a few of you who are fans of the Nats, the season can't end soon enough. There are things to be following and monitoring as the Nationals' regular season plays out. So I don't want to make it sound like every game moving forward is completely meaningless. That's not the case. You want to see these young Nats especially do well, but it just has been a trying 2021 for the Nationals, and that continued with what went down over these last few days here at the Mets. So we did have a game on Wednesday, but just one game instead of the scheduled two. An 8-7 loss that started on Tuesday night, ended on Wednesday, featured three Nats errors, and featured the Nats blowing two three-run leads. The Nats blew a 4-1 third inning lead and a 7-4 fifth inning lead. Nats now are 50-63 and on the season with a National League East worst run differential of minus 40. So there was good news out of all of this, okay? Uh, Juan Soto is back. And that's good news, and we shouldn't take that for granted. Uh, so Soto was the Nats' starting right fielder and number three batter in this 8-7 loss at the Mets that, again, started on Tuesday night and ended on Wednesday. Soto did not start any of the three games in the Nats' series loss at the Atlanta Braves over the weekend due to an ailing right knee, but he was out there beginning with the portion of the game on Tuesday night, and he looked good, certainly offensively, in this game one of the series. He reached base four times, three for four with a homer, two singles, and a walk. So Soto in the Tuesday night portion of the game smashed a three-run opposite field homer to left center field at the top of the first off the Mets starter Carlos Carrasco. And then Soto in the Wednesday portion of the game, a two-out five-pitch walk in the top of the second, a two-out single in the top of the fourth, and a leadoff single in the top of the sixth, despite having been down to the count at one point, one-two. He did look a little choppy in the field at times over the course of this game one, but what matters the most with Juan Soto, obviously, is what he's doing as a hitter. And as a hitter, he looked just fine in this game number one. And, you know, it's tricky with Soto because he's had an odd season. He's had a streaky season. At times, he's been hitting for, like, no power. He's hit into a bunch of double plays this year. So it's been an odd year. But the overall numbers for Juan Soto this season really are great. And I think that needs to be emphasized because we can lose sight of that. Juan Soto is having a tremendous season. Juan Soto, as we speak here on this Thursday, has a batting average of 303, has an on-base percentage of 431, and has a slugging percentage of 510. He's having a 300, 400, 500 season, which is not something that many players can say that they've done. Uh, That is an excellent offensive season that Juan Soto has put together. And how about this for Soto entering games on Wednesday? Soto per stat cast entered play on Wednesday with the lowest chase rate in the majors this season and with the highest percentage of swings that produce hard contact in the majors this season. So chase rate is the percentage of non-strikes that you chase. Juan Soto going into games on Wednesday in terms of qualified batters, best chase rate in the majors this season, but also among qualified batters, highest percentage of swings that had produced hard contact this season. Again, that's not easy to do, and yet he's done that. He's really doing a great job 
as a hitter this year. The route to this has been rather circuitous. You know, it hasn't just been a steady Eddie year, but at the end of the year, it's about, well, overall, what'd you do? And overall, what Juan Soto has done has been very impressive. So great to see Soto back out there for the Nats in game one of the series. Not so great to see the Nats defense and pitching in this game one of the series. So the Nats committed three errors in the game. Errors aren't always the be-all, end-all when it comes to how good your defense is. And truth be told, two of the errors by the Nats ended up not being that costly. But one of them was, and one of them had to do with a relief outing that did not go so well. So if you put aside Joe Ross, and we'll get to Ross momentarily, the two relievers who Davey Martinez leaned on on Wednesday ended up being Gabe Klobositz and Mason Thompson. I mentioned the Nats blowing multiple three-run leads in this game. That second three-run lead, the 7-4 fifth inning lead, ended up being mostly about the Nats bullpen failing to come through. And look, these two guys who we're going to talk about here and Gabe Klobositz and Mason Thompson, they're younger pitchers, okay? So you're not going to necessarily expect excellence from them from the get-go, but you certainly would have liked to have seen better on Wednesday, and you did not see better. Klobositz and Thompson end up combining to allow three runs, two earned, in two innings. Now, Klobositz and Thompson, each guy's listed as being 6'7", so the Nats have a twin tower scenario going on in the bullpen right now with these guys, but as we've learned and been taught many times over the years in not just baseball, but in all sports, just because you look the part doesn't guarantee that you can play the part, and Klobositz and Thompson have some things to learn as major league relievers. So Klobositz allowed a run in the bottom of the seventh on a first pitch leadoff single by Brandon Nimmo and a one-out RBI double by Pete Alonso on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats' lead to 7-6. And then Thompson really was a mess in the bottom of the eighth inning during which he allowed two runs, one earned. Now, I say one earned run, but the unearned run was due to an error that Mason Thompson himself committed. So he gave up a leadoff double to J.D. Davis, but Thompson then committed a horrendous throwing error on a sacrifice bunt by Jonathan Villar, scoring Davis. Uh, I mean, the throw was just off. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to say it. That's a throw that has to be made. It wasn't made by Thompson. Thompson later gave up a one-out full-count RBI single to Brandon Drury. Now, there was an element of bad luck on that because the ball was not hit hard, and the ball ended up being hit over a leaping Luis Garcia in a drawn-in Nats infield, but that is an RBI single for Drury. And then Thompson, for good measure, gave up a two-out single to Jeff McNeil. So the bullpen unable to get the job done. But the Nats pitching in this Wednesday portion of the game really does come back to Joe Ross. So Ross technically was a reliever in this game. Paolo Espino started the game. He started the Tuesday night portion of the game, and he himself wasn't great. Uh, Paolo gave up a run in one inning. He gave up a run in the bottom of the first on back-to-back two-out doubles by Pete Alonso and Dominic Smith. And then interestingly, Paolo actually batted in his spot in the top of the second to begin things in the Wednesday portion of the game as he was the first batter. The Nats had Riley Adams on first base off a leadoff single to conclude the action on Tuesday night. Yeah, this gets confusing. And Paolo went up to bat, uh, put down a good-looking sacrifice bunt in what ended up being a one-run national second inning. So Paolo was used as a batter, and then Paolo was out of the game, and then Joe Ross took over the Wednesday portion of this Nats 8-7 loss at the Mets, and Ross struggled. So he began his time in the game in the bottom of the second, and ultimately allowed four runs in five innings. He gave up six hits, two doubles, and four singles. He only issued one walk, but it was a costly walk. 
and he only had two strikeouts. Ross allowed three runs in the bottom of the third on two doubles, two singles, and an RBI ground out. The two doubles were especially disappointing. Ross gave up a leadoff opposite field double to Brandon Nimmo to left field, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. And Ross then gave up a two-out RBI double to J.D. Davis to left field, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. So each guy, Nimmo and Davis, was in a put-away spot, and Ross was unable to put each guy away. Nimmo was down 1-2, ended up delivering a leadoff double. Davis was down 0-2, ended up delivering a two-out RBI double. And then Ross allowed a run in the bottom of the fifth on a leadoff five-pitch walk of Jeff McNeil. Uh, That was the only walk that Ross issued in his outing, but that was a costly walk because later in the inning, you had a two-out full-count RBI single by Michael Conforto. Now, Conforto did then get tagged out in a rundown between first and second base for the third out, but the damage had been done. And so Joe Ross ends up struggling. Like I said, four runs in five innings. This was Ross's 20th game of the season. He now has an ERA of 417 on the year. And this Jekyll and Hyde nature to Joe Ross's 2021 season continues. In fact, get a load of this. So this outing for Ross on Wednesday was his fourth outing since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on due to right elbow inflammation. If you track what Ross has done since coming off the 10-day IL, he essentially has been good, then bad, then good, then bad. Like, that's the way his outings slash starts have gone since he came off the 10-day IL. 6-5 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on July 26. His first outing off the 10-day IL, it was terrific. Five scoreless innings. His next start, 6-3 loss to the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park on July 31st. He was bad. Five runs, four earned, and four into third innings. His most recent start prior to this outing on Wednesday, Ross was pretty good. 7-6 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park last Thursday. Three runs and six into third innings. I know that line isn't spectacular, but Ross in the game Gave up just five hits, uh, issued two walks into hit by pitch, but he had seven strikeouts. He threw 59 strikes versus 25 balls on 84 pitches. Joe Ross, you just don't know which Joe Ross is going to show up outing in and outing out. He's not consistent. And that's a problem. That's a big problem for a pitcher as he's trying to develop. And so, you know, I look at Joe Ross and I'm like, well, he's good enough to where he can be in your rotation, but the way he is, he's just not more than a number four or number five starter. And there are worse things in the world, you know, like you need number four and number five starters. But, you know, this thing of, well, maybe Joe Ross can be a number three, maybe even a number two. No, I don't think we can say that. You know, I think he's a number four, number five guy. And you just wish that the good Joe Ross, who we know exists because we've seen that Joe Ross, could be on display more often. Uh, With the two other errors by the Nats in this game, So one was a tough fielding play. I mean, it was an error, but Luis Garcia, what was a pretty difficult two-out fielding error on a James McCann grounder in the bottom of the second inning. That was not an easy play to make. But the other error was a play that has to be made. Carter Keboom had a throwing error, another throwing error. This one to begin the bottom of the sixth inning. He committed a throwing error on a J.D. Davis grounder as Keboom had trouble transferring the baseball from his glove to his hand. This has been an issue for Carter Keboom. And in the past, it's been more thing where he like can't get the ball out of his glove for some strange reason. In this case, it was more just a sloppy exchange from his glove to his hand. But it's odd with Keboom at third base because he's making the plays. He's having a hard time, A, with the transfer of the baseball from the glove to his throwing hand, and then B, with the throws. So like he's got one part of the act down. He's got to get those other parts down. And it, it, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a guy have as much difficulty as Keboom is having transferring the baseball from the glove to the hand. I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, I will say, too, Josh Bell could have caught the throw that Kibu made. Uh, that was a pickable pick at first base for Josh Bell. He was unable, though, to come through 
with the pick. But I will say this, uh, both Garcia and Keyboom did deliver with the bat in this 8-7 Nats loss at the Mets uh, in a game that concluded on Wednesday. So for Carter Keyboom, he had an opposite field bloop single on a ball that barely landed on the outfield grass upon being jammed in what ended up being a Nationals three-run fifth inning. That was actually a good piece of hitting by Keyboom. And then he ended up scoring all the way from first base on Luis Garcia's two-run double in that inning. And that was a good piece of hitting by Garcia. Two-run double to the right center field gap and the Nationals three-run fifth inning. So it was good to see that. I mean, Keyboom and Garcia are two guys you absolutely are tracking as the rest of this season goes down. How they perform matters a lot. How Victor Robles performs matters a lot. He was out there as the Nationals starting center fielder in this game. You know, it's been good to see this. Davey Martinez going with Victor as the Nats starting center fielder. Keyboom as the Nats starting third baseman. Garcia as the Nats starting second baseman. And Robles actually had two hits in this game. He had a leadoff single in the Nats three-run first in the Tuesday night portion of the game. And he had a one-out RBI double to left field on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the second of the Wednesday portion of the game. Although, this is kind of a gift of a double. Uh, Robles had a ball that was sent to left field. The Mets left fielder, Dominic Smith, who is not known for his defense, totally butchered the play. Really should have made the catch. You know, he was uh, tracking toward the wall. I don't know if that got to him. You know, he was moving deep into the shade. I don't know if that got to Dominic Smith. But whatever the case, that's a catch that should have been made. So that was at least somewhat generous official scoring there for Victor Robles to get that double. But he did put the ball in play. He does get credit for the double. He does end up finishing uh, with a multi-hit game. Also, Riley Adams had a multi-hit game for the Nationals. He was back out there as an Nats starting catcher. Adams is a guy who the Nats got back from the Toronto Blue Jays in the Brad Hand trade. And Adams has done a pretty good job here as a hitter. Adams in this game, two for four with two singles, including an RBI single. He had an RBI single in the Nats three-run fifth. He also had a leadoff single in the Nationals one-run second inning. Yadiel Hernandez had three walks in the game. A rough game, though, for Josh Bell, 0 for 5. He left four men on base. Also with the Nats was this, and I got a kick out of this, but a kick out of this in not such a great way. So the Nats on Wednesday selected the contract of lefty Sean Nolan from AAA Rochester and option Sam Clay to Rochester. And I think the idea was for Nolan to potentially pitch in game two of the two games that were supposed to be played at the Mets on Wednesday. But understand the following about Sean Nolan. So this season is Sean Nolan's age 31 season. And Sean Nolan has not pitched in a major league game since October 2015. Let me repeat that. Sean Nolan has not pitched in a major league game since October 2015. So two things to highlight here. Number one, there is some list of guys that is being accumulated here for the Nationals this season in terms of vagabonds slash castoffs slash misfits who end up playing for the Nationals. I mean, you have Alcides Escobar, who had not played in a major league game since 2018. Now we're about to have Sean Nolan, who had not pitched in a major league game since October 2015. So you just start with that. But then there is the age factor. So like I said, this season is Sean Nolan's age 31 season. He becomes yet another 30-something player called up from AAA Rochester by the Nats this season. The Nats have got to lead the majors, or at least be close to leading the majors, in most 30-something players summoned from AAA this season. And I know that there are plenty of 30-somethings in minor league baseball. Like, not every player in the minors is someone 
in his early to mid-20s, right? Like sometimes you have these what are called 4A players playing at the AAA level, guys who were good enough or too good for AAA but not good enough for the majors. But in what to me is one of the great indictments of the state of the Nationals farm system, so often this year, when the Nats have had to summon someone from AAA, that someone has been someone in his 30s. Rare is the call-up who is, you know, in his 20s and on the come. More frequent is the call-up who's in his 30s, is kind of a baseball vagabond, and is trying to just hold on to his career or is trying to reignite his career or something like that. But here's a list of Nationals call-ups this season in terms of guys in their 30s, all right? So now we have Sean Nolan to add to a list that already included Yadiel Hernandez, Gerardo Parra, Adrian Sanchez, Ryan Harper, Javi Guerra, Justin Miller, and Kyle Lobstein. I mean, just right there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guys, eight guys in their 30s who the Nats have called up from AAA Rochester this season. That's not normal, people. That's not the way that this is supposed to work. When we talk about, well, why did the Nationals engage in that sell-off? Did they really have to trade Trey Turner? Why did they have to trade Trey Turner? This is why, people. This is why. All you're doing, it feels like, is calling up guys in their 30s from the minors. That's a problem. And Sean Nolan is the latest guy. I just, I saw that on Wednesday and I was like, man, I got to talk about that on the podcast. That's not the way this should be. And yet it be. All right. So we'll see if we can get in a couple of games here on Thursday for the Nationals at the Mets. What we'll have is, or at least what we're supposed to have is a single admission doubleheader on Thursday. Nationals at the Mets. The doubleheader set to begin at 12.10 p.m. Game two will begin approximately 30 to 40 minutes after the conclusion of game one. Each game will be a seven-inning game. We do not know who will be starting for the Nats in either game. We do know, though, that Eric Fetty will be starting one of the games. And we do know also this. Eric Fetty needs to pitch well. Uh, Eric Fetty has not been pitching well lately. His last start, 8-4 loss at the Atlanta Braves on Friday night. Five runs, four earned in four and two-thirds innings. He allowed way too much contact in that outing. Fetty has made seven starts since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he was on with a left oblique strain. He, over those seven starts, has allowed 26 earned runs in 32 innings. Not good. He can be better. Hopefully, he is better on Thursday. All right, so there is good news and bad news for the Orioles. Uh, That is if you care about the outcomes of Orioles games. I do not, not in this rebuilding and tanking season. I do care about certain players on the Orioles, one of whom I'll talk about shortly. But the good news is that the O's on Wednesday night uh, did not allow at least nine runs. Uh, The O's had allowed at least nine runs in each of six consecutive games. That was one shy of the major league record for such a streak, the record shared by the 1901 New York Giants and the 2000 Seattle Mariners. So that streak for the Orioles is over, but the O's on Wednesday night uh, did lose again, a 5-2 loss to the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in game two of a three-game series. Second consecutive game in the series, delayed by rain. The O's now have lost seven consecutive games. The O's during that seven-game losing streak have been outscored 68 20 Five. Yes, the O's during their current seven-game losing streak have been outscored by 43 runs. O's now in American League worst 38 and 74 with an AL worst run differential of minus 174. But the bright spot right now 
is Anthony Santander, who is on fire. Uh, this is Anthony Santander. He's a guy who is streaky. He was on fire not that long ago. Then he got ice cold. Now, over the last three games, he's caught fire again. So Anthony Santander on Wednesday night was the Orioles starting DH at number four batter. He had a leadoff single in the bottom of the second, a two-out full count single in the bottom of the sixth, and a one-out two-run homer in the bottom of the eighth inning. And the homer was some shot, a mammoth blast that went a projected 413 feet per stat cast and onto Utah Street. I think the fact that it went onto Utah Street and was sky high made it seem longer, bigger, you know, more gargantuan than 413 feet. But that was a shot that at least visually looked like a moonshot from Santander. This off him in the 9-4 loss to the Tigers on Tuesday night as the Orioles starting right fielder at number four batter, having two solo homers. Anthony Santander now, over his last three games, is eight for 13 with four homers, a double, and three singles. He has homered in three consecutive games. His slugging percentage for the season, how about this? His slugging percentage for the season over just these last three games has gone from 377 to 438. But that's Anthony Santander. Like when he gets hot, he gets a special kind of hot. The problem is he isn't always that hot. But Anthony Santander can hit for power. That's for sure. Anthony Santander last season slugged 575. And this is only his age 26 season. So I do view him as a potential building block for the Orioles. Like when we talk about the building blocks from a position player standpoint for the O's, you talk about Cedric Mullins, you talk about Ryan Mountcastle, you talk about Austin Hayes. Eventually, we'll talk about Adley Rutschman and hopefully Heston Kerstad. But Anthony Santander is in that mix. Uh, He's young enough to where he can be a part of the Orioles when they finally get to be good again. He's far from a perfect player, but the guy can mash, and mash he has over these last three games, and mash he did on Wednesday night. The Orioles' starting pitcher on Wednesday night was Matt Harvey, and uh, this was a ho-hum Harvey start. Uh, Not wretched, but certainly not great. He was looking great for a while, uh, but ultimately three runs in five innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, two doubles, and five singles. He issued three walks. He did have five strikeouts, and he did start off really well. Harvey tossed four into third scoreless innings before giving up three runs in the top of the fifth on a homer, two doubles, and a walk. So for a while, it looked like we were seeing the Harvey who gave us 21 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings not that long ago. That streak ended in Harvey's previous start, the 10-3 loss at the New York Yankees last Wednesday night. Harvey in that game, two runs in four innings, but things falling apart for Harvey in the top of the fifth on Wednesday night. Game three for the Orioles against the Tigers at Camden Yards Thursday afternoon at 4.05. John Means will start for the O's. All right, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 122, will be a special show, our first show recapping a Washington football team game. I started this podcast in late February. The next installment of the pod will be our first post-game installment of the pod for the Washington football team. Yes, a post-game installment of the pod for a preseason game, but still a post-game installment of the pod. I'll go through everything that mattered from Washington's preseason opener at the New England Patriots on Thursday night. I may be up all night putting that bad boy together, but that's okay. Uh, Look for the show when you look for every episode of the show out by 5 a.m. A A post-game installment of the pod will be waiting for you when you wake up 
on Friday morning, uh, or perhaps when you come home from whatever it was that you were doing on Thursday night. Don't worry. Either way is fine. We don't judge on this podcast. Have a great rest of your Thursday. Enjoy the game, and I'll talk to you on Friday. You like the juice, eh? <laughs> yeah, you know. The juice is good, eh?